I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, we bring you into a fascinating conversation that took place at the 2022 Sun Valley Writers' Conference between Ben Rhodes, one of President Obama's closest advisors on foreign policy, and the author of After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made, and Ayad Akhtar, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist and playwright and the president of PEN America. When Ben Rhodes was Barack Obama's deputy national security advisor, he saw the world from inside the administration and the power bubble. In the following years, on a searching journey, he traveled the world. He spoke with dissidents, protesters, and oppositionists in Russia, Ukraine, Hungary, mainland China, and Hong Kong, confronting the nationalism and authoritarianism that has now led to war in Europe while threatening American democracy at home. Now as a respected author and commentator, Rhodes paints a deeply informed picture of the world we are living in today with the rise of authoritarian leaders and ethno-nationalism and the flood of disinformation enabling them. Let's jump right in with Ayad asking Ben, in particular, about that intriguing subtitle to his book. The subtitle, Being American in the World We've Made, is really the thesis of the book, that we look out at Hungary, at China, at Russia, at what's happening, the larger picture, and we as Americans don't necessarily recognize what we see. And the startling thesis of your book, which I think you so convincingly convey and prove, is that that world that we don't recognize is actually entirely shaped by our values. Can you explain that? Yeah, and there's, there's a negative and a positive, like there is to everything. 
And, and, and I wanna be very clear about this as I get into this, like America is, everything in the world is in this country because we come from everywhere. And the highest aspirations that human beings have ever had in human history are expressed by America. But so are all the darkest uh, elements of human beings. And so here, here's how I describe it. The, the negative thesis is that we have to reckon with the fact, and I alluded to this briefly tonight, that, that, that for 30 years, we had a position of preeminence in this world from 1990 to, well, 2016 really with Trump, but, uh, it's a, let's, say, but let's take it to 2020. Kind of like unparalleled. If the start of that period is the end of the Cold War, and the end of that period is where we are now, we have to look in the mirror. We can't just say, like, Putin did it, uh, as, although he did a lot of it. Um, and to me, I ended up focusing on three things. You know, first is the particular strain of capitalism and the excesses of capitalism and deregulation that flooded the world and crashed in 08 and that we've been trying to pick up the pieces since 08. And we've talked about that. The second is national security and the post 9-11 world that I joined. And I think we have to reckon with the fact that, you know, two things dealt body blows to American credibility. One was the financial crisis, the other was the Iraq war. And what it, we spent trillions of dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan and built this massive thing to deal with terrorism, which relative to climate change or democratic values or any other number of issues is not what you would go back and spend those trillions of dollars on. But not only that, it was an incredibly militarized and securitized face for Hegemon to show the world. And there was a face that allowed the Putins of the world to say, these guys talk about norms. They just invaded Iraq and occupied it. So I'm gonna invade Georgia as he did in 2008, or I'm gonna invade Ukraine. It doesn't make Putin right at all. I'll be very clear about that. And it doesn't mean these things are exactly equivalent. It does mean that we can't do those things and then be surprised when other people say, well, you guys say that you don't have to play by the rules that you want everybody else to play by, so we're not gonna play by them anymore. And oh, by the way, Putin justified the canceling of the election of governors and the basically consolidation of power in the Kremlin as counterterrorism measures because he was fighting the same global war on terror that we were. And by the way, George Bush had embraced him as a partner in the global war on terror. And he used the global war on terror to justify that. The Chinese- Looked into, looked into his soul. Yes, and saw- A good I man. I don't know what he saw, yeah. <laughs> um, the Chinese call the mass internment of the Uyghurs the people's war on terror. Um, and, and not only that though, I think 9-11 it unleashed a kind of us versus them jingoism that we also lost control of. So at the beginning, the them was the terrorists, but particularly as we weren't beating, we weren't winning, whatever winning means, even though we we're wiping out all the terrorists, but in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was no victory to be achieved because what is that victory? Is it controlling those countries? The, the, the media that was the most xenophobic, and I'm gonna sound partisan here, but the kind of right-wing media, talk radio, dark website stuff, and Fox, the them started evolving. And the same stuff that was stirred up about the terrorists could be repurposed to the black president or 
immigrants at our southern border. By 2014, there was a campaign ad run that Obama was letting Ebola-infested terrorists cross the southern border. It was like every them, you know, packaged, right? And that's Trump. Like, Trump is impossible without 9-11 because he needed this idea of kind of an ethno-nationalist grievance-based politics with the biggest them possible. And Trump painted the biggest them possible. And then the third element is social media and technology, which is connected to the money because essentially we create these tools that are incredible tools of empowerment. And I lived this roller coaster because you can connect people and get information in everybody's hands. And we ride this wave in 08 in the Obama campaign and in part draws on that. And the wave kind of crests at the Arab Spring. And that's when the autocrats see, well, these can also be the perfect tools of disinformation because if what the companies need is clicks, we'll give them the clicks. And by giving the clicks, we can manipulate the information that people get and turn these tools that are headquartered in the United States into the perfect delivery vehicles for our propaganda and disinformation. And the Chinese see the same tools and say, well, we can use this to monitor every aspect of our citizens' lives, right? And so it's not that we intended for that to be the case, but it is what happened. Now, profit, on the, so profit, national security, and technology. Profit, national security, and technology. And by the way, race is embedded into all this. <laughs> and Heather McGee summed it up better than I can, but there's obviously a racial component to each of the things I talked about, particularly the first two. Um, now, on the upside, the people that I was talking to for my book were opposition figures. And they looked to the best of what America represents. You know, Alexei Navalny, the way he built a nationwide grassroots anti-corruption machine was YouTube shows and social media and community-based organizing looking at the United States. The Hong Kong protesters, their salute was from the Hunger Games. Their culture, their slogans, and I'm unfortunately going to curse here, but like, F the police was the slogan I said, you know, American culture and culture of protest, they were taking the good. You know, the Hungarians who I met with look entirely to kind of American small d democratic politics as their lifeline. And every one of those people told me the most important thing, Alexei Navalny, a man who was poisoned and almost killed before and after I spoke to him said, Yes, I need American foreign policy, but what I need more than anything else is for you guys to be who you say you are. That will make my job much easier if you live up to the story that America tells, because it is the best story about equality and about rights. And he said, look, when Donald Trump got elected and Putin's been telling everybody, he's like, I've been telling everybody my whole life that in a democracy, the best people rise to the top. And Putin's been saying the opposite. And he's like, after Trump got elected, my taxi driver could tell me, Alexei, you're wrong. Putin's right. Look who's running that country. And so I think we have to realize we are big and complex. We are, as James Baldwin described us, bigger and, and more various and more terrifying and more wonderful than, and I didn't get that exactly right, I'm sure, but like, than, than we even know. But if we don't make an effort, and this is your thing I believe, I believe in America because if we don't believe in it, what is left? What is left is what we are seeing in Ukraine. And so we have to believe in the better story, but that doesn't mean that the story is given. It means we have to work for it. You, yeah, you do make me, when, I, when we talk, you make me a believer in a form of American exceptionalism. Yeah. A, a true and, believer. And, and the exceptionalism is not that 
like we are anointed as the best. And this has been an interesting debate throughout history and it's the next book I'm working on is gonna deal with this. Like, cause in part there's the view that just we are somehow by dint of being Americans, exceptional and right. What's exceptional is the story that we created about ourselves at our founding. Because we had to create a story because we're not an ethnic group and we're not a single religion. So our nation is just a story. That's all it is. It's 50 states that all signed on to the same story and has some documents and some laws that are, as we've learned recently, not self-executing, that are tied to that story. And we've never, for one second of our history, lived up to that story. But when we try to, we move in the right direction. When, when we don't, we look no different than the people that we claim to be our competitors. I grew up with this word in school, in civics, uh, in the public discourse, on the news, democracy. I never really knew what it was. I took it for granted for a very long time. Vaguely associated it with like voting and elections and stuff. As if that were what it really meant. You thought about this about as deeply as anybody I know. So I want to ask you point blank, what is democracy? So to me, democracy is inexorably tied to equality. Equal administration of justice, equal opportunity to participate in the political life of your community and your country, equal opportunity to participate in the economy of your country. To me, that's what democracy is. You can have elections, and yet they have elections in Russia. The outcome is pretty clear on the front end. And my characters in this book include a woman whose father was the most prominent political oppositionist to Putin, and he was killed right in front of the Kremlin. It's not democracy, even though there's an election, you know? And so to me, it's that pursuit of, of equality. And here's the other interesting thing I figured out for myself in writing this book, and is that there's no such thing as like a pure democracy. There's a spectrum. Everything is on a spectrum, you know, between kind of Orwellian totalitarianism and like the aspirational democracy where, where everybody's equal. And when I say equal, it's not in a communist sense. There are going to be people with more resources than other people. I'm, I'm a, a capitalist at, at the end of the day. But where we are on that spectrum, you know, shifts. And America was more of a democracy during Reconstruction than it was after Plessy versus Ferguson. And we are less of a democracy now than we were 20 years ago. And it's trying to push us on that spectrum in the direction, in my view, of, of re meaningful political equality that is the work of democracy. I remember us having a conversation about this and you articulated everything you just did and then you added to it that that sharing of power, that sharing of political process means that there is no single stranglehold on in understanding reality and that in a way democracy also means the freedom to understand reality. So the most chilling anecdote, I loved, I loved Hong Kong. Um, and I, I say it in the past tense because it's not what it used to be, but it's still out there. And, and it was so fascinating and hopeful and heartbreaking at the same time to be in this city where people were trying to resist the inevitable elimination of 
whatever democracy they had, whatever rights they had. And I talked to people about all different things. And I mentioned this the other night, so I won't go into too much detail about just the encroaching, the sense of like almost an encroaching organism, taking over those bookshops, buying up the media, erasing the legal barriers between Hong Kong and mainland China, massive incentives and disincentives. And I talked to politicians and frontline protesters, but there was a young woman who was not particularly politically active, who said it better than anybody. She said the Communist Party wants to get to a point where they can stand in front of me and point at a deer and tell me it's a horse. And I have to accept that. And I won't. And, and there's a connection between democracy and just the ability to, A, live in objective reality, not in a reality that is created by political authority. And two, to figure out for yourself <laughs> what you think it is, right? That's what people in Hong Kong could do that people in Shanghai couldn't do, even though the people in Shanghai were just as wealthy as the people in Hong Kong. And which might be actually our only competitive edge ultimately against a Chinese state which has every other advantage. This is my hope, and I really am hopeful about, I maintain my hope in human beings and in America in part because where would we be without it? But like, we're in a rough period of history and I'd be lying to you if I said, oh, it's gonna be okay and one more election. No, I think this is gonna be a pretty rough decade here and globally. But I don't think human beings want to have somebody pointed at a horse and tell them it's a deer. Like, I, I, human beings, you know, when, and this is when, the, when a crack opens in that facade and people can kind of breathe the air of making their own choices, it's not just about democracy. It's about just the capacity to choose who you are as a human being. I think that is universal. And maybe that's my American, that's the, the remaining, last remaining strand of my American naivete, but I, I mean, think it's Aristotle, universal. Aristotle was not American and defined a human being as the creature who wishes to know, which is what I hear you saying. Yeah, and the desire to know. What it, some of you heard for Evan yesterday. I met these people in China that they don't know that Tiananmen Square happened. It's been erased from the internet. It's been erased from the history books. It has been erased from the curricula. But as Evan said, the, the study abroad, they, they want to Google Tiananmen Square, right? People want to know. And the Chinese are making a bet that they can, it is, really is Orwell, that they can have such total control over information and incentives and disincentives in society that you will no longer want to know. I think that's a losing bet, but it might work for a while, and it has worked for a while in the past. There's a Gandhi line that I always cling to in the darkest times, which is, I'm gonna shorthand it, but essentially it's tyrants may seem inevitable for a time, but they always fall. Like, think of it, always. There's just a question of how long it takes. There's been a lot of talk about hope and the need for hope. I, I find it disconcerting at times, this default to constantly being told that everything's going to be okay as if we were children. So I suppose I'm asking you to take the freedom to not be hopeful for a moment. Our great national philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, that greatest of human optimists, once wrote, great men, great nations have not been boasters and buffoons, but perceivers of the terror of life 
and have manned themselves to face it. I'd like to ask you to treat us like adults for a moment, like members of a great nation, able to perceive the terror of life. Tell us what might be on the horizon specifically. Walk us through the deeper danger of what might actually be coming. Hmm. Uh, um, I wrote the hope story, right? <laughs> the progress narrative. You wrote that slogan, we are the... We are the ones we've been waiting for. I put that in the speech. And I believe it, but I'll, I'll first deal with the darkness. Because there's a danger to telling people, oh, it's okay. Think about the 2020 election. We all thought, oh, we did it. We who share that political affiliation. So I'm, I, 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 I'm respectful. I don't expect everybody to agree with that. But like, people care about small d democracy and are, but look, look at where we are now. Like, if you're hopeful and then it turns out that someone's not been telling you the truth and things aren't getting better fast enough for you, that breeds a cynicism and apathy. Be specific. We are living, and this is why I wrote this book and this is why I started with Hungary, through a period in which, in my view, and again, I'm expressing a partisan view, so I acknowledge that. It's not what I want to be expressing, by the way. I, I, those, go back and read the speeches in the OA campaign. We, we red states, blue states. We are living through a period in which a faction in this country has figured out that you can manipulate our own democracy to create minoritarian rule of the majority. This was done in Hungary, and I mentioned this tonight, but it bears repeating. Pack the courts with far-right judges. Change the voting laws to make it easier for your supporters to vote and harder for others to vote. Enrich some cronies on the outside who then finance your politics. Create a massive propaganda machinery on broadcast television and radio and then attack your opponents on social media. Wrap it all up in an ethno-nationalist message. Like, this is not just happening here, it's happening everywhere. And here, we are already in the middle of that period. Like, when people talk about the future threats to democracy, we are in the middle of a period in which the expressed will of the people through the popular election of representatives and the president doesn't matter when it comes to a fundamental right, like whether a woman controls her own body in this country, right? Whether or not elected politicians can even do anything to fight climate change. And this is going to continue to be an increasing feature of national life for a lot of reasons that encompass everything from voting rights to the money in our politics, to the nature of the courts, to population trends vis-a-vis -vis the Senate and the Electoral College. We're in a period in which a minority viewpoint that expresses a particular ethnic worldview is going to have far more power than their vote share. And that's going to create serious social cohesion problems. There is going to be instability in this country, and pretending like that's not the case is not helpful. And we've had tough times in the past, but we've never had a mob storm the U.S. Capitol. Like, we've never had people try to implement laws to allow state legislatures to overturn the results of democratic elections. This is new. And, and it's, it's foolish to pretend it's not. And at the same time, we have these we have China with an alternative model, not just of government, but of society. And you have Russia kind of taking us back to kind of the pre-World War I era of like big powers that 
try to control chunks of other territory and that can lead to wars. So there's a lot out there. There's a lot of turbulence ahead of us in terms of like, I think political instability in this country and nationalist clashes globally. Now, but why does that matter to me? I have a country house and a pied a terre, so I'm okay. I would say a couple things. Uh, first of all, there's some issues that, you know, uh, climate change is going to come your way. Yeah, but it's going to come my way whether we're living in a liberal or illiberal democracy. But illiberal democracies are not the ones that are going to, to, to make decisions for the collective good, because Putin doesn't care what happens the day after he dies, right? Um, I would say, though, that don't underestimate what can happen, Ayad. Like the, 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 I don't, the, I'm, not, I'm not that worried. I, I feel pessimistic and depressed about this stuff, but... But, but, but you also know history. And what makes I mean, you, I'm taking on this point uh, no, of No, I know. View. What yeah. makes you think that you can be... Just in case you didn't. What makes... <laughs> if there is a war... If, the, if a can increasingly nationalist America ends up clashing with the Russia-China... Look, look, what would history tell us is going to happen? History would tell us that, like, in pretty soon in my lifetime, there will be some war between a nationalist America and a Russia-China axis. And that's going to affect you, Right? That's, that's not like, I had to deprogram myself as an American born in 1977 that I grew up in the most peaceful, prosperous, and stable environment in human history. That's not the norm. What is happening in Ukraine now is actually the norm of human history. And it happens pretty regularly, a couple times a century usually, right? And you just try to hope that it's not that destructive. And yes, you're insulated and maybe you'll be fine. And maybe, and you're right, and like, in the, the lower boil thing of like, like policies I don't like and mass shootings that don't hit me and climate change that uh, I'm smart enough not to have real estate in certain places <laughs> or, um, you know, yeah, you're right to some extent. I would like to think that America exists in part because we have a bigger sense of our own self-interest within this country and around the world. And again, I think what gives me hope is I think that there's a bankruptcy and a corruption to the alternative models right now. In a way, communism was a stronger model because it wasn't just tied to like Vladimir Putin. It was a system that needed to regenerate. I think that today's auto autocrats are so kleptocratic and self-interested that they may be less likely, A, to like bring about their own death, literally, and B, at some point, I think in the same way that liberal globalization has been discredited. They're headed for a cliff of being discredited. And that's why what I am hopeful about is coming out on the other end of that. In the same way that America's coming out on the other end of a lot of things. And, and the question is, can we make sure that this period of turbulence, that the plane doesn't crash <laughs> and we get to the, the clean air? Um, and if we do, I think we'll be stronger for it. And if you look at every period of American history, we end up being stronger for the bad period that we go through. And that's why I do believe, to end on a hopeful Barack Obama-esque note, when the arc of moral universe is long but bent towards justice, people kind of throw that, like, I get dunked on, you know, about that. But nobody said that that's a straight line. It's just about, like, directionally, orientationally, like, where are we headed as human beings? And Obama's very first speech, when, you know, he talked about the audacity of hope, he made this point, like, it's the hope of slaves singing freedom songs. People in much worse circumstances than us 
who were hopeful, who believed. Alexei Navalny, after I interviewed him, I mean, I, I know we're at time, but like I, I interviewed this guy. He's sitting in his house. Then he's poisoned and almost killed. And they airlifted him to Germany. And I emailed him, and I was like, hey, do you want to review your quotes for this book? And he's like, Ben, what the fuck? <laughs> he's like, you think I care about, like, no, like, write whatever you want. Like, I, I almost just got killed, you know? And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm getting ready to go back to Russia. He flew back. And you watched the Navalny documentary. He flew back. And, and I had asked him, are you scared? And he said, of course I'm scared, because once the cell door closes, you know they can do anything to you. But he flew back to Russia and got arrested the moment he landed. And they had timed it so that just as he was arrested, they released the movie about Putin's palace. And when I asked Navalny's chief of staff, what were the conversations like about whether or not Alexei would go back? What were those like? He said, we never had them. Of course he was going to go back. He's Russian and he believes in Russia and he wants to be the president of Russia. And if he lives, he will be after Putin dies. If he, do, and I was like, if he doesn't live, and he's like, he can't think about that. That's our job to think about that. If those people, <laughs> if people can do that, we should be able to get our stuff together. There are people out there where it's much worse, like, and they are fighting, and they need us to be who we say we are. Ben Rhodes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. A good one, we hope. To catch all the latest from the Sun Valley Writers Conference, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to listen to this conversation in its entirety, or to any of our other talks, you can find them at svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, and this is Beyond the Page. Until next time.